I'm here with Erica Stanford, the National Party spokesperson on education. We are talking in Wanaka. Welcome to Wanaka, Erica. Is this a part of the country that you're familiar with? This is my very first time, I'm embarrassed to say, but I certainly will tell you I'll be back because I think I might have fallen in love with the place in the what, few hours that I've been here. Well, you live in Auckland. Uh, I can tell you it doesn't rain that much down here, which must be an advantage as far as Auckland is concerned. <laughs> well, you just wait five minutes in Auckland and it's raining, right? Indeed. All right, let's talk about education. I know you're responsible for an education portfolio which only goes to the end of high school. You're not tertiary education spokesperson. But there's a big story down this part of the world at the moment. Otago University has got a massive drop in roll this year. It's got a huge budget hole. One of the reasons being put about by the university administration is that not as many kids are getting university entrance at school these days. Now, how appalled are you by that? And in a broad brush term, what can we do to improve the level of achievement at secondary school level so that more kids can go to university or should be able to go to university? Yeah, there's a number of, of things going on. Of course, we've had COVID and there has been a, a drop in achievement because of that. And that was inevitable. And you see it across across the world. It's not unique to us, right? So uh, this year, we saw results from last year. We saw a drop in UAE. And we've seen that over the last couple of years. Um, and that is to be expected. But more broadly, when you look at uh, students who are exiting our compulsory sector and their uh, the, the drop in NCA rates and UE rates uh, and also literacy and numeracy is problematic. So even kids who are turning up at tertiary, we're being told by those outfits that they are having to run literacy and numeracy courses before they can even start doing the course that they're in. We're hearing that from the... Uh, uh, not only the university sector and tertiary providers, but also from um, the uh, apprenticeship providers as well. Exactly the same thing. And we're also hearing it from employers. So the required levels of literacy and numeracy aren't anywhere near where they need to be or have been in the past. So, And it's, it was pre-COVID as well. So, so yes, COVID has had an impact on that, but we're seeing that more broadly as well. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is... Uh, how do we get kids who are at curriculum by the time they finish intermediate so that they can be successful at, at, at high school? Uh, so there's a, there's a couple of things going on here. One of them is the fact that we've been failing our kids for a long time. So it's not, I'm not blaming this Labour government. Uh, it's been happening for 30 years. So we've had a decline in educational standards, which means that... Uh, as it turns out, we've sort of almost been dumbing down our NCEA to, to account for that rather than actually looking at the root of the problem, um, which is what are we doing at primary and intermediate. But it's like in everything, though, isn't it? It's about basics. I mean, when you play sport, you play rugby, you learn to pass and kick a ball when you're six, seven years of age. When you're in the All Blacks, you're still practising doing that. When you go to school, you should be learning first up to read and to write to a really good level. I suspect that... If there are so many kids getting to intermediate high school, even university, without basic writing and, uh, and number skills, they're just not being taught that at a young age. And why have we gone away from the basics of education? Well, I think there's a number of things to unpack. So firstly, you're right. We have, so if you look at, at the number of kids who are leaving intermediate uh, not at curriculum, it's half. Half. So 45% for math, 35% for, re for reading. I think slightly over half for writing, uh, for reading, sorry. Reading is about 55% and, and writing is 35 So overall, 
our kids are leaving intermediate and they're not at curriculum. They're, they're well behind. Uh, and so they can't uh, access all the opportunities at high school. The reasons for this along the way are many and varied. So the first thing is about uh, early 2000s, we changed our curriculum. We stripped all of the knowledge out of it. We uh, added in these, these core competencies, which are very difficult to measure and very difficult to teach to. Uh, and so that's part of the problem. But that was an ideological thing, wasn't it? The officials at the Ministry of Education said, we're not going to teach uh, phonics, we're not going to teach basic one plus one or times tables anymore, we're going to do competencies, whatever that means to parents. Well, the, co- the root of the problem has been the curriculum because the curriculum then doesn't require any of that, that stuff and then you get the ideology on top of that. So uh, we changed to a, a, you know, a whole word reading approach, uh, which... Meant, you know, kids had to, to learn and memorise whole words rather than decode them using uh, phonics. So, so that was one thing. Then we had the numeracy project, which was we're going to teach all these kids different strategies and how to do maths rather than one good strategy and, and do it right. And then suddenly the kids have to make decisions uh, when they're very young about which strategy to use. So we had, you know, at the numeracy project, we had the whole word learning approach uh, to reading. So those are, those are pedagogies or approaches to teaching. When you layer on top of that the fact that we've got a curriculum that has got no knowledge in it, it it is completely devoid of knowledge. So if you go to school in Auckland compared to Tauranga or or Invercargill, you could be learning something completely different. There is no core consistency of that core content knowledge to be taught in every year across the country in every school. But how have politicians allowed bureaucrats to get away with this for so long? Because to me that seems to be the core of the problem. It's the ideology being run by the Ministry of Education and we know it is a very female uh, skewed senior leadership team there. And I'm nothing against women, heaven forbid, I've got a mother and a sister who are school teachers. But for some reason, the, the, the female influence in education is not doing our young men any good. But there just seems to be something in that senior leadership team at the Ministry of Education which says it's our way or the highway. I think what we're missing is uh, being led by evidence and science. The evidence and science has said for a really long time, the way that we learn, the way the human brain learns, and there's been a lot of studies, is in a sequenced, scaffolded, scope and sequenced way, which is you you, you scaffold your learning. uh, And we've taken that, uh, we've gone right away from that. And it's teacher led, by the way. Teachers will impart knowledge and scaffold that learning along the way. Uh, And and you're right that the ministry is going has gone away from that to this uh, child-led open plan. The kid's going to come to school and tell you what they want to learn today, and there is nothing in the curriculum that tells them what they have to learn. And so, of course, you know you you end up with these huge inequities, and, and there's and there's no consistency across the sector. So that has been driven, and, and the ministry have allowed that to happen. So my view very much is, well, how do we how do we ensure that we're led by the science, the science of learning? Uh, has been around for a long time now, and it and it talks about automation of, of knowledge. So you know, making sure you rote learn your times tables, for example, which we don't do anymore because rote learning is a bad thing. Yet all of the science tells us that you need to automatise a certain degree of, of knowledge so that you don't get a cognitive overload. So, as a minister of education, would you be would you be putting directions the way of the ministry to change their way of thinking? And if they are not prepared to do that, then you get the public service commissioner to move those people on and get new people in there who will enact your party's policy? Well, there's certainly an argument for something like a, you know, and I call it in my mind, I don't know, a Centre for Academics Achievement or something, which 
is basically looking at what is best practice. What does the latest science tell us that is best practiced in terms of learning, in terms of pedagogy? Uh, so that we're led by that science and not by people in the ministry who've got vested interests or people from university who've done PhDs and weird things who come in and, and say this is the new way and we follow <laughs> it without any actual peer-reviewed proper international evidence. The science of learning is clear. Scope and sequence and scaffolded learning and a mastery approach is the way to go. And why we don't do that, but if we had something that, that you know, uh, you know, uh, an outfit in in the ministry or sat outside the ministry that actually followed the science and said, this is the latest science. We're not going to be swayed by these weird things that we keep doubling down on for years that, that are failing our kids. So if you were the Minister of Education in the next government, would you be looking to follow that path to change the way of thinking at the ministry, either through this centre of excellence or through instructions through the Public Service Commission to the leadership team at the Ministry of Education? Well, at the moment, we're looking at all the different ways of being able to do that. But something has to change because at the moment, it, it feels like you get someone in the ministry uh, who has a great idea and we all follow it uh, and we don't actually test our kids to make sure it's working because, God forbid, we test anyone to see what's happening. Uh, and then when it fails, we just double down and, and, and keep doing it. We've done this with the whole word learning approach for decades. There is no evidence to support that it ever worked. Uh, and we're still, in fact, the ministry just signed a uh, another contract with Reading Recovery, which is based on the whole word learning approach. Last week, I'm just I, tearing my hair out going, what are we doing? We know that structured literacy is the way to go. All the evidence suggests it. And here we are signing another contract. So there has to be a way of doing that. And the way, you know, look, there are different mechanisms and we're looking at all of that. But there has to be something that doesn't allow the these people in the ministry to have their harebrained ideas that we just follow like sheep because too much rides on it because it's actually our kids and their futures and actually the future of this country. What about the New Zealand history curriculum which I understand is underway this year is a brainchild of Jacinda Ardern and looking at the headlines of the curriculum I know you probably know that what's being taught is a it's an extremely distorted view of New Zealand history, it's it's amount it amounts in my mind to indoctrination, uh, to kids being taught not the right history of New Zealand or far from the complete history of New Zealand. Will you be making a change as part of uh, your ministry, the ministry that you would be the minister for, to say let's have a rethink about this, let's go back to square one. If we are going to teach New Zealand history, we'll do it a different way. I want to start by saying we need to teach New Zealand history. Of course we do. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we yeah. didn't. I didn't learn it when I was a kid, and yeah. actually we did what Tudor Stuart England when I was in fifth or sixth form, which I hated and was not relevant at all. And I feel I've done a great disservice by not learning New Zealand history. I think, and I've spoken to a number of historians recently about this very issue, understanding the, the practice of teaching history, and the, the, their view very clearly is you teach the facts and you uh, allow people to come to their own conclusions. That's how history teaching works. It's like, you know, I remember learning about Nazi Germany in third form. No one said to me, evil, you know, he was a terrible evil man. And this is, you know, you don't start with a conclusion, you start with the facts and you come to your conclusions. It didn't take long to realise he was a horrifically evil man that did awful things. Um, but their, their view is that the, the history curriculum starts with the answers uh, and then backfills with the facts that fit those answers rather than here are, here are the facts and letting kids come to their own conclusions along the way, which you inevitably do, and you see the, injust the huge injustices that were done to the Māori people along the way. The other issue that I've got with it as well is it's really negative. I've spent some time down in um, Dunedin with Sir, Sir Ian Taylor, 
and he's got his he's he's done his own um, history curriculum called Mataranga, which is if you've seen it, the most amazing, inspirational, uplifting thing I've ever seen. And I, if I were a Māori or Pacific Island kid, I would look at that at that that uh, curriculum that he's set up, which is about the the journey of the Pacific people to to, to New Zealand. And what an incredible feat of science and engineering that was. And man, I tell you what, it makes those kids proud to be Pacific or Māori kids because it tells them, you are STEM kids, it's in your blood. That was the greatest migration of any people across the country. He reckons you know, more difficult than getting to the moon in, in the time that they did it. And it's so uplifting and so positive and he ties it to today, to the, the America's Cup boats, right? And you know, I look at that version of teaching history and go, wow, that makes those kids feel really good about themselves. And I look at the, the history curriculum we've got now, and you know, it's not particularly uplifting, and it's not celebratory, it's not, it's not positive. So, well, I it's guess, about finding victims, really, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, like I say, I, I think we need to start with the facts, and people work out their own conclusions. Like that's how history is supposed to be taught, from what I understand. But also, there are certainly some aspects that we could bring in, like his his uh, Maturanga curriculum, which is makes kids feel good about themselves. What about the unions? Now, I'll put my cards on the table. I come from a family full of teachers. My father was a teacher, my mother was a teacher, my first wife was a teacher, my sister's a teacher. So I lived with teachers for the first 40-something years of my life. Uh, they were not unionised teachers. They did, not appear, they did their job. They did not appear to be influenced by what the union said about them. But then that was over 25 years ago. I think things are different now, aren't they? The unions... They have way too much influence in education these days, don't they? Well, it's interesting at the moment watching the the negotiations that are going on and talking to a lot of teachers who don't feel like they're being particularly represented by the union, especially the, the, the NZDI. Uh, uh, so th- they're not happy. I know that some of them are, are leaving because of that, um, because they're not getting what they wanted. Um, but I've always said it's a, it's a great shame that we don't have a union that represents the kids. <laughs> Yes, but what about a National Party policy about teacher pay, for instance? It's always about the collective and about the more you get paid is based on how long you've been in the job, basically, unless you want to apply for a position of responsibility. Uh, is, is National prepared to go back and, and look again at performance pay? Because after all, every other industry pays its top people the best for performing on the front line. Why shouldn't teachers be paid like that? And and uh, are National prepared to take the unions head on on this issue again? Look, you're right, and that's how every other sector works. It's a lot more complicated than that in education. Uh, you know, I talk to I talk to principals, <laughs> and I say to them, look, you know, you'll be the ones to to. To decide on this. No, they I, shouldn't have to be. There are things called ERA. We used to call them the inspectors. They went and had a look and they knew who a good teacher was and a bad teacher was. I mean, there are ways, you could even ask kids, there are ways of working out who's a good teacher and who's a bad teacher, just like you can in any other industry, can't you? You can, but it's still very fraught because you've got to have, you, in the end, it is going to sit with the principal. Yes, mm. and I was just talking to a French lady before coming to this interview, actually, mm. uh, who said that's exactly what happens in France. They have uh, inspectors who go around and sit in for a day. Um, you know, again, I mean, how much can they possibly know? Uh, and then I think that's why teachers are always really concerned when National talks about uh, uh, testing kids because they feel like we're heading down the track of performance pay and using those tests to 
to work out whether or not teachers are doing a good job. And I've, always, I've said it many times, it's not my intention. My intention with testing is to make sure that kids are on track. I know where to put resources, and if I make big changes, are they having the right effect? I'm not interested in, in, in using tests to, to work out in performance pay agenda. Mm. But that's only, only one way of working out performance pay. I mean, I've worked in journalism for a long time, and you'd sit alongside somebody that you thought you were better at the job then, yet they were getting paid more than you. So, and, and they'd have the same experience as you. So what I'm saying is that in every other field, people can be collegial, they can work in the same work environment, do the same job, be the same age, have the same qualifications and experience, yet be rated by the boss to be worth more. Sometimes that happens, that's just life. Why can't teachers accept that? Well, what, what I'm looking at is, is a version of that. Because mm. one of the things, and it always comes back to my focus on literacy and numeracy, mm. because we've got a, we have a burning platform in this country at the moment, uh, and the need to have literacy and numeracy specialists and probably science specialists and maybe even uh, assessment specialists in our primary and intermediates. So how, how do we create another level of sort of management within schools that's, look, not everyone's going to be a principal or a DP or an AP, mm. but we, we really need specialists in those areas. So how do we create positions, in-school positions, that are literacy leads, numeracy leads, science leads, that, that allow our best teachers, our great teachers who have got a passion in those areas and who are willing to share their knowledge and passion you know, across the other teachers and, and create a layer in there. So you've got something for, for teachers to aspire to because part of the problem at the moment with retention, when I mean, there's a number of problems, but one of the problems is career progression. We just never talk to teachers about what their career progressions are. So adding in an extra layer um, is potentially a step in between what you're talking about and just doing nothing. What about teacher training as well? Because uh, we hear that a lot of people don't go into teacher training because of the cost of learning to be a teacher, going through a teacher's college, university, etc., and then the student loan they're going to have. Now, you've just uh, announced a policy regarding nurses, haven't you, about helping them with their training uh, with some bonding on the other end so they can pay back the loan that, or, or the uh, subsidy for the loan. What about doing the same with teachers as well, to go back to the days when, well, when my parents trained, that they were paid to go to teachers' college? Yeah, you're right. So, mm. so that used to happen, and it was mm. very successful. Mm. And I've got, at the moment now, the, the uh, Secondary Schools Principals Association saying a very similar thing, because the, our, our biggest problem at the moment is in attraction and retention of um, secondary school teachers. Mm. So... So we have a particular problem at the moment in our secondary schools with attraction and retention. Uh, And the Secondary Schools Principals Association have been impressing upon me what we used to do in the past with bonding and and paying fees. Uh, And it is certainly very attractive, and I can tell you we're looking at it across the sector. We're looking at it going, well, actually... uh, how do we purchase what we need? And actually we need nurses and we need teachers. So certainly all of these things are, are being talked about at the moment. Uh, you know, with teachers especially, because it was such a, a good policy in the past, but it also means that, you know, those beginning, it's always that, that, that first sort of five years of being a teacher where your pay is you know, relatively lower than, you know, people above you uh, and, and, and quite low. And at the moment it's only about three or $4,000 above you know, minimum, minimum wage, wage yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so having coming out with without a student loan and, and being bonded for five years, I guess, is very attractive. Uh, not only with senior school uh, senior school teachers, but also primary as well. So, so all of those things are in the mix at the moment. You're absolutely right. But, but 
it also we have to talk about retention because it's not just about pay and your student loan. It's the same with nurses. Nurses are worried about uh, their autonomy. They're worried about their shift work. So what are teachers worried about? Because, yep, I can pay you a loan off after five years, but it's more than that. It's the conditions in the classroom, the fact that they've got three or four kids who have got severe learning difficulties or are traumatised or have got Asperger's or, or ADHD or autism. Uh, you know, so it's those conditions. It's all the paperwork. It's you know, there's a lot of other things about retention that we also have to fix at the same time. Because you can turn the tap on at the top, but if you're pouring water into a colander, it's just going to fall out the bottom. So how do you plug those holes? So it's about doing both of those things. All right. Now, just finally, because there's a few people arriving here for lunch, uh, Erica, <laughs> you've announced the big policy so far. I think there's more to come, but mm-hmm. it was essentially, it was in my mind successful because it was delightfully simple. An hour's worth of reading, writing and arithmetic each day is the three hours. Let's get back to basics. Uh, you, as the spokesperson for Education National, go around schools. How has that been received, that policy? Has there been a mixture of reaction, uh, like the, the hard lefties, the, the people, at, you know, the Jan Tanetti type school teachers, uh, are they against it? But are there a good number of teachers in primary schools especially who are saying good about time? I mean, what kind of reaction are you getting? It's been split down the middle, I can tell you, because mm-hmm. uh, the schools who are already doing it are like, we're already doing it and it's best practice mm-hmm. and everyone else should be doing it. The schools who aren't doing it uh, are, are you know, giving me look, the reasons they can't or, sh- or are not. And, it's, you know, and it comes down to often you know, we've got kids in our class who uh, have learning difficulties and they can't. You know, there's just lots and lots of excuses. But I've been into low-decile schools with all exactly the same issues who were doing an hour, an hour, an hour, uh, like Minurewa Intermediate that I was in the other day. Highly successful school. They've got exactly the same you know, socioeconomic problems as other low-decile schools, and yet they manage to do it. It's important that we do have a line in the sand around the time we spend doing reading, writing and maths, uh, but also the fact that we're assessing our kids along the way. Again, half the schools have said to me, great, we already do that, it's no different for us. And the other half are like, oh, we couldn't possibly assess our kids because, you know, for some reason. But actually, Peter, this is not so much about the schools and the teachers as it is about them, but it's equally about parents. Parents are worried about their kids not being able to read or write or do math Uh, and are falling further and further behind. And that's why this has landed so well with them. They did some vox popping, Radio New Zealand did, outside uh, Onehunga Primary School. And you could hear the the, the diverse accents, you know, the migrants and Pacifica and all sorts of different people. And they interviewed them and they said, this is Nationals policy, what do you think? And they loved it. They were like, you know, you could hear the voices saying, I'm worried about my daughter, she's not reading very well. I'm worried about my son. I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. And these are the people who cannot afford to send their kids to after-school lessons. In my electorate, decile 10 schools, all of the numer- you know, the number works and the Kit McGrath, full. Because these are the people that can afford to send their kids to... They shouldn't have to. All we're doing is creating more and more of a divide in this country between the haves and the have-nots. We've always had a big divide. It's getting worse. It's vitally important to me that those kids at the very bottom you know, from low socioeconomic areas whose parents can't afford to send them to after-school activities or don't have the time because they're working shift works to, to sit down with them and do, you know, extra math and, and reading and writing after school. Those are the kids who are missing out, and we see it in our NCEA results with numeracy and literacy where 10%, 10% of our DSL one kids could pass a basic literacy and numeracy test. 
10%. Those are the kids I'm worried about. Those are the kids who are not getting an hour of reading, writing and maths a day. They're not being assessed through the system and their parents can't afford to send them to after school activities. So you know what? We need consistency across the board. Every child should have the same opportunity in this country to learn the same core curriculum uh, and they have that same knowledge imparted through the curriculum the same amount of reading, writing and maths every day and they deserve to be making sure that they're on track by testing them twice a year to make sure that they're progressing through so they're not left behind. Those are the kids I'm really worried about. I hope this is not an embarrassing question for you, but do your kids go to state schools? I've got one at uh, state school and she went through uh, the the local um, intermediate and she's at Rangitota College that I went to. And my son is an intermediate, and he's at a private school for now, for intermediate, but next year he'll be going to... And why is he at a private school? Um, he's a boy, and he's had some... It's, it's yeah. personal reasons for yeah. him. Yeah. Hey, you're not the first National Party politician to send their kids to private school. Simon Bridges mm. did as well. When well lots I, of when, Labour. When he was the MP in Tauranga. Lots yeah. of Labour ministers and, and MPs do as well. Um, you know, it, there's lots of reasons for it. I mean... You know, I, I'm upset with the open plan learning. I'm upset with the the the, the, the lack of teacher-led instruction. Uh, you know, uh, generally around the country. So, I, and and you go to private schools, they don't do that. They do single cell. They do teacher-led instruction. There's none of this child-led rubbish that's led us down the wrong track. And they've got really good curriculum. I want that for every single child in New Zealand. The reason we send our son to a private intermediate uh, is for personal reasons for him, because you know, I won't go into, but he will be going to our local high school once he's out of intermediate, um, which is amazing. We're very lucky to have Rangitoto College up the road. But like I say, I just want that consistency across the country for every child, no matter their circumstances. It should Education should be the great equaliser. It's the, you know, we should, the test of a great education system is how it lifts up kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds and lets them be successful as anyone else. And we do not have that. And we have not had that for decades. And I go into these low decile schools and I meet these kids and it make you cry. They have got so much potential. There's one kid in particular that I went to, I visited um, uh, West Harbour School, um, close to my electorate, decile one or two school. And this little kid, he just, he was, he was, he just, he embodied every other kid in a low decile school. He was, he was smart. He was eager to learn. He had so much potential. And I, I just thought, actually, you know, half the kids in, the, in the, his class had gang uh, shirts underneath their uniforms. You know, they were from difficult backgrounds. And I just thought, he's got every potential to be amazing, this kid. But we have taken our eye off the ball. And certainly this government has taken their eye off the ball with our low decile kids and made that, that gap even wider. And I just, every everything that I do will be making sure that those kids get the same opportunities as everyone else. Okay, and just finally, when's the next tranche of National Party education policy due? Um, I haven't been given a date at this point, so I'll have to go back to the the boss and find out what the schedule is, but we've got another three or four coming down the pipeline, and and, and it will be filling in the gaps, because at the moment the the criticism around our policy is, oh, what about this, what about this, what about this? I can't announce everything in one policy. It'll get it'll get drowned out and forgotten. So, so we are looking at great leadership. We're looking at attendance. We're looking at resourcing in classrooms, uh, about teacher supply. So there's there's quite a bit of work being done in the background uh, that we'll be releasing over time. Lovely talking to you, Erica. Enjoy Wanaka. Thanks for thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'll be back. Peter Williams from one o'clock on RCR Reality Check Radio.